Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and subscribing to this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community by sharing knowledge, best practices, and of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast, and now on YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado, here's the latest episode, and as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Adventures in Advising. It's our 12th episode of 2021, and we have three great guests joining us. Indeed we do, but before we get to that, just wanted to read a couple of comments from our survey. This one is from Olivia Miller, who said, I love listening to each episode of the podcast. It's a great way to start my week and to learn from so many people across the world. And this next one is from Loxley Nibs, who wrote, the podcast is wonderful. I look forward to each episode like a regular television show. Kudos to you guys for this awesome platform showcasing academic advising. Honestly, thank you so much, Olivia and Loxley. Appreciate your comments. And over the next few episodes, we'll be reading even more. So let's jump to our first interview. If you follow us on social media, then you know we just started a new series on our Adventures in Advising YouTube channel called Dane's Desk. It's hosted by longtime listener Dane Zanowski from Temple University. So let's chat with Dane for a few minutes and find out more about this new series. We have a very special guest back with us today and also some exciting news, which we will get to in a moment. So that guest is none other than Dane Zanowski, academic advisor at Temple University. Longtime listeners of the podcast will remember Dane from episode 12 titled Inspiring Ideas. Dane has been supporting us from day one, and I still remember getting a LinkedIn message from Dane saying how much he not only was enjoying the podcast, but specifically gained much out of an interview with Dr. Craig McGill. And then he mentioned Star Wars, and it was like instant friends. So Dane, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Colm and Matt. Thanks for having me back on. We're delighted to get the opportunity to chat to you at any stage, Dane, and I know we will get to the exciting developments, but it has been a year since we were last chatting to you. How has the the past year been for you, Dane, and uh, how have things been, I guess, at Temple? Yeah, so needless to say, it's been a whirlwind of a year, a lot of ups and downs um, through the pandemic and still working remotely. Um, since last year, you know, we've been through a full academic year and, and cycle, working with students remotely, um, which has had challenges. And, um, you know, as, as advisors would know, you're dealing with a lot of situations going on there, whether it's the flexible grading or, you know, mental health issues. But again, we're looking forward to hopefully being back on campus soon um, for the fall semester. Um, we're having those return to campus discussions with our group. Uh, so that's ongoing right now. Um, also in the past year, I want to give a shout out, especially to my daughter today, because um, as we're recording this, today's her last day of kindergarten. So I officially have a first grader going into the fall. So I'm excited for her. And we we made it as parents through the, the past year in the virtual environment, um, slash teachers, I guess, if you will. So we were home to support her. But yeah, it's been it's been an interesting year to say the least, but looking forward to what's coming next. Did they have a kindergarten graduation ceremony? They actually did, yep, this morning. So they had a, a nice little ceremony which highlighted each student. 
um, and they had all the the teachers come on to say congratulations. So it was it was really nice. Um, it was a good way to to end the year. But we are excited for hopefully for my daughter to actually go to school in person uh, for the fall. Yeah. And Dane, I know one of the other things that you were involved uh, with over the past year was Nakata's Tuesday Tea Talk series, right? Yeah, yeah. So the Tuesday Tea Talk series came out of the Advisor Training and Development Advising Community. Um, it's part of one of our subcommittees, uh, the Lunch and Learn Subcommittee. Um, and this past May, I did the first Tuesday Tea Talk around professional development and how to find professional development opportunities on a low or no budget. You know, because as advisors, especially now during the remote work time period, we may not have access to funding that we usually do. Um, so I wanted to have a session to really, you know, get out ideas of, you know, where can you look for those opportunities and still engage in professional development in a remote fashion. And speaking of professional development, you got something coming up, uh, some project involving adventures and advising. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So let's uh, let's do the official intro of Dane's Desk. Um, I on the side, honestly, I've been calling it like the spinoff series because I'm <laughs> because I'm a geek and a nerd. <laughs> uh, the spinoff series of the Adventures and Advising podcast. Um, so what we're what I'm looking to do really is highlight. Same as Adventures in Advising, highlight advisors and share their stories. But now through the new YouTube channel that the the Adventures in Advising podcast has. Um, so these are really going to be quick videos, you know, two to three minutes in length. But again, it's a, a way for advisors to share their stories about different topics. Um, you know, in terms of like professional de de development, advising philosophy, um, I have a lot of guests on the slate, you know, coming up in terms of other topics like innovative advising practices, integrating academic and career advising. So a lot of different topics, um, you know, so we're finishing up our first round of recordings and it is looking to launch the week of June 14th. And can can you give us a, a sneak peek as to some of the people that uh, that you've uh, chatted to uh, so far, Dane? Yeah, so, so far it's been really a good mix of, of people, you know, that advisors I know within, you know, Temple and uh, advisors I've connected with through Nakata. Um, so, for example, the first guest is actually Casey Gregerson. She is the co-chair of the Wellbeing and Advisor Retention Advising Community, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm definitely connected with through Nakata. So she'll be talking about her advising philosophy. I have one of my colleagues from Temple University as well, Seth Fink. Who's also he was kind of my advising philosophy mentor, um, so I have him as a guest, um, as well as people from around region two that I've also connected with, um, you know Amber King and and Tim Cox, who's a communications chair. Um, Column, you were actually you're going to be featured as well. I got to chat with you on some advisor self care and work life balance, so that's a, a great topic. So definitely check out Column's video on that post. Awesome. And so you mentioned quite a few people. Now, if anyone's listening, that's like, hey, I would love to be on Dane's desk. Is there a way that they can potentially be on your YouTube channel? Yes. So I welcome anyone and everyone. If you have a couple minutes to spare and you want to share your story about pretty much any advising topic or any topic of interest, um, feel free to find me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Those are probably the best ways to get in contact with me. 
um, Dane Zanowski, and you can see, you'll probably see my name posted on the podcast here. But yeah, connect with me if you're interested in being a guest. Connect with me if you have any ideas about any topics that we can, you know, share uh, through the Dane's Death Series. Feel free to reach out to me, or if you want to nominate someone else to be a guest, feel free to reach out as well. So again, I welcome anyone and everyone. We have some topics scheduled, but I'm always happy to expand on those topics. Well, Dane, I certainly really enjoyed recording with you. And I think what we can do is we can put a link maybe to your to your LinkedIn profile in our show notes to make it easy for listeners to, to get in touch. But it, I think this will be a really lovely little series to, to go alongside the, the podcast, adds to the Adventures in Advising universe. And uh, I am looking forward to, to seeing how this rolls out. So uh, best of luck to, to you on, uh, on this adventure. And uh, I, I think it'll be really fantastic. Yes, I'm excited to, to keep this going and to, to feature more advisors so we can hear their great stories and their great practices of what they're doing. Of course, anyone listening right now, this podcast is being posted on Monday, June 21st. So Dane mentioned that this was going live the week of the 14th. So that means that there are already a couple episodes already out for Dane's desk. So go ahead over to our YouTube channel, Adventures in Advising. Check out Dane's Desk now. Like, comment, and even subscribe to our podcast. And look forward to more episodes of Dane's Desk. So Dane, thank you for being with us. You can check out Dane's Desk on the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. The first two episodes with Casey Gregerson from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and Seth Fink from Temple University are now up there. Yes, and let us know what you think of Dane's Desk. New episodes every Wednesday on our Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. And a special shout out to Michael Harrison, digital artist who designed the logo for Dane's Desk. So another reason to check out the videos and see the amazing logo. Thank you so much, Michael Harrison. Back to the survey results. You had mentioned wanting to hear more of the global perspective. So we have two guests to talk about that. Coming up, Matt chats with Amanda Roberts-Bahar. Our guest right now is a longtime supporter of the Adventures in Advising podcast, and that is Amanda Roberts-Mather, Assistant Director for the Academic Services Office at Texas A&M University at Qatar. Amanda earned her bachelor's degree in history from Texas A&M and thought for the longest time of becoming a history teacher, but working as an admin assistant, found her way into academic advising and hasn't turned back. Amanda has been in academic advising for the last 15 years and an ACADA member for 12 years. Previously, Amanda served as a senior academic advisor and prior to that, administrative coordinator at Texas A&M University and was also a field trip coordinator at College Station ISD. Amanda is a born and bred Texan, but currently lives in Doha, with the two places being very similar with weather, hot in summer and pleasant in the winter. What's also similar is Arabic hospitality is very much like Southern hospitality, generous, welcoming, and they feed you until you pop. Amanda is also very active in Nakata and also participated in the Emerging Leaders Program, the 2017, the 2019 cohort, the best cohort, in my opinion. And let's welcome Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Howdy, Matt. Thanks. I'm glad to be here today. We've been wanting to have you on as a guest for a while. So, you know, stars aligned and, and here we are. So usually we start our podcast 
kind of asking our guests to kind of give us your path into advising, kind of like your background story. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, like you mentioned, I had always thought I was going to be a high school history teacher. My degree is in history. I have a passion for it. I, I'm a nerd out over history. So I thought, I'm, I want to teach this. And it is my firm belief in the hands of the right instructor. History can be really, really interesting or in the wrong instructor's hands, spectacularly boring. And unfortunately, I think a lot of instructors are not the right ones. So that was, I was going to be a spectacularly interesting, fascinating history teacher. And then I got to college and I loved my classes, but I thought maybe I don't want to put myself in that position as a 21 year old teaching 17, 18 year olds. So maybe I need a little bit more experience. So um, I went to work for College Station ISD as a field trip coordinator. Loved that, but I really wanted to get back to Texas A&M. And so I ended up working in the College of Engineering as an administrative coordinator for one of the departments. And I kept having students come to ask me about their degree plans, about what classes they would take. The advisor in that department at the time was a little bit of a dragon lady, and students were a little bit scared to go ask her these questions. You know, um, she didn't suffer fools. She was real nice. She just didn't suffer fools. And, you know, so they were a little bit scared of her. So people noticed that they were coming to me. And a lot of folks said, you know, you'd be a really good academic advisor. Have you considered us? No, I haven't. Um, but then literally next door, the next building over, there was a position posted. I applied for it. And then it took them a while to get back to me. And I forgot that I had applied. Um, but long story short, October 2006 is when I started academic advising. And I have really feel like I have found my niche that is this is what I am meant to do. Um, and now over here in Doha, I do uh, more administration than advising, but I do still have some advising job duties as well. Um, but I love it. I love being around the students. I love seeing the light bulbs go on in their heads. I love seeing a problem uh, work its way to a solution. And the best day of my year every year is graduation. There are, you know, there's always those students where you feel like you kind of have to pull them across the stage, but they did it. They got there. And I just absolutely love celebrating with them. Yeah, it's kind of funny, like, you know, you want to be a history teacher and then decide, you know what, this may not be what I want to do. And let, let me go find something else. And then kind of stumbled upon the whole academic advising uh, profession. So I'm just trying to think, oh, if, if Amanda went and became a history teacher, I would never have met her. So I'm glad you went the academic advising route. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's very true. There's there's a lot of things in my life that I would not have. I would not be in Doha if I had if I had decided to get my teacher certification. So, yeah, I'm very grateful to be where I am. Yeah. And I guess, you know, kind of going into making that decision to apply for that academic advising position, I think I had read that, you know, many people had encouraged you to apply for that advising position. Do you think you still would have applied for that other college's academic advising position had it not been for that encouragement? Uh, you know, may I mean, I enjoyed the job that I was in. I was, you know, and I worked with a small faculty, mm -hmm. um, about eight or nine faculty, a small engineering program and really liked it. And students were great. But it was just never something that ever was on my radar. Um, when I was in college in the 90s, um, Academic advising was not really something that was marketed so much as it is now. Um, I went through four advisors in three years. 
Um, just because the, the, and that particular department um, didn't require advising. It was optional. You could go and ask questions, but a lot of it, students were kind of left to fend for themselves and figure it out. And so my goal as an advisor is to not be the kind of advisor I had as an undergrad um, and to really make sure that students know that they are so much more than their ID number. They are so much more than their GPA and what's on their transcript. And I really worked very hard to develop uh, those relationships. So, yeah, advising was not something that I had ever considered as a career path until it kind of landed in my lap. And I'm really I'm glad it did because, yeah, my mom jokes that I get paid to tell people what to do, which is not untrue. <laughs> um but in a good way. Right. Well, we're more of a, give me a lot of suggestions. <laughs> yes. I advise you decide. Right. Now, was yes. it hard for you to make that decision to leave Texas for this new position or position you've been in now for a few years um, in, in Doha? Yeah, it was incredibly hard. Um, I bawled uh, on the airport, out of the airport um, and probably through, for, so we flew from College Station to Houston, which is about a 35 minute flight. And then we had a few hours layover and then a flight to Germany. And I think I probably cried a good seven or eight hours that day. But, um, you know, we we both really liked working for Texas A&M. My husband is an IT administrator um, and he worked for civil engineering and I was in the College of Education. And folks had kind of encouraged us to look at there was a faculty member, particularly in his department, that said, you've got to come to Doha. You've got to come check it out. And so when those two positions were posted at the same time, we looked at each other and said, this is a sign that this is something we're supposed to do. We need to have this adventure. And we both had always wanted to live and work abroad. We never really considered the Middle East as an option um, because, I mean, I guess being from Texas, you, you don't, if, if you want to live and work abroad, you think maybe Australia or somewhere in Europe, but the Middle East doesn't really it doesn't cross your mind much, but I'm so glad that we have moved here because it has been such an eye opening experience and we have been so welcomed and expat life will challenge you in ways that you never imagined until we moved to Doha. I had never lived more than three hours drive from my family and we are incredibly close. Um, and so that was really, really hard. But uh, we Skype every Sunday. I talk to my mom and dad. Um, sometimes my sisters join in if they're not carting, schlepping kids everywhere. Um, we have a, an app called Marco Polo that we send videos back and forth on. So I have been able to see my niece's band concerts and choir concerts and all that. Um, we try to get home at least once a year. Uh, it's been over a year now since we've been home because pandemic made it a little bit more difficult. But um, without technology, I don't know that I could have done it. But we've also been very, very lucky right. to find a really great uh, tight-knit group of Aggies here in Doha. Um, a lot of us came from the main campus. We are former students of the university. Um, we don't call ourselves alumni because once you're an Aggie, you're always an Aggie. So we're former students. Um, so there's there's a tight-knit group of us. And um, the, the Cutter Foundation that Texas A&M falls under, that umbrella, um, they provide housing for us. And so we had three or four options to choose from. And we live in, uh, we live downtown and it's a 40 story building. We're on the 16th floor. Um, two of our very best friends are on nine and 20. Our director of records, who's also a very close friend, former advisor. Um, he's on 24. 
Uh, we have some faculty. So it's really like living in a grown-up dorm. It's great. <laughs> so so that support has been critical as well. So, um, yeah, it's we really do have an extended family here that's made that, this experience so much more worthwhile. And it's just been amazing. It was tough. But both of us felt like it was the right time to do it in our careers. Um, you know, I was happy where I was. I liked my job. But my boss wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, there wasn't really any place for me to advance in that department. Um, so I really knew that if I wanted to, you know, to do something different um, or move up, then I was going to have to go to either another department or another institution. I didn't really expect to go 8,000 miles away. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I'm like, yeah, usually when people want to you know, have that professional growth, it's I'll go to another department or maybe another institution, you know, a few miles away. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm going to pack up and take my life to overseas. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it has its challenges. Um, it has its headaches. The, <laughs> I was hired to be one of three advisors. And the second day at work, um, my supervisor who had hired me, um, called me into her office and she said, we need to talk. And I was like, have I screwed up already? I've been here two days. Like I've, I'm still jet lagged. And she's like, no, 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 you're fine. Um, but I need to tell you that I'm leaving. And I was like, excuse me. <laughs> she's like, no, I was supposed to leave in December or in, uh, sorry, I was supposed to leave in August, but they wanted me to stay on to at least get you you know, hired and initiated. I was like, okay. So she left in March. Um, and then the other advisor got another position within our outreach office, um, working with community, which, and she is a local, she was kind of re, so it was perfectly suited for her. But so by spring break of that semester, I was on my own in the office. Wow. Yeah. And then, uh, the director of records at the time and, um, the, my, my new supervisor um, in August of 2016 left. And so um, they, the administration was like, you've been doing this job for a little over a year now. You're managing the office. You've got a new advisor hired. How would you like to move up and run the office and actually do the job you're doing? Like, we'll pay you to do that. And I was like, yeah. um, okay. <laughs> so, so that's how I moved into the administration. And it, it was... I probably would not have gotten that opportunity in College Station that quickly um, to mm -hmm. to to be, you know, to put my stamp on the advising office and, and implement some best practices from main campus and things that I've learned through Nakata. Um, so it's been a really great opportunity for me to uh, grow and be challenged and and rise to the occasion. And I, my boss seems pretty happy with my job performance, so <laughs> I feel pretty good about where I am right now. Yeah, but they haven't let you go. So that's a good sign. No, no. And I've been very, very blessed. Uh, my current supervisor is the best uh, supervisor I have ever had. Um, he challenges me. He gives me a lot of, um, he has a lot of patience and he listens to me when I'm not quite sure, you know, what the best option for something is or whatever. Um, but he also trusts me to know what I'm doing. And he considers, you know, my input on a lot of things as well. And he is the a supervisor that I really feel like I work with and not for. He's very collaborative. He's, I just, I really, we have a great team in place over here. I'm really excited at where we are and where we're going. Yeah, sounds like very much a team effort type of deal over there. And I guess in your position yeah. right now yeah. as assistant director, what does that now entail? Because you're talking about it's more administrative, 
but you also do some advising. So can you talk more about that? Yeah. So we are a very small campus. We only have about 500 students. So by necessity, um, there are several of us that wear multiple hats. So um, I'm assistant director for academic services. So that covers not only academic advising, and I do advise for, um, normally I would just advise my honors students. Right now we are down a team member. So I'm advising freshmen and sophomore students for the last year as well. And then my other advisor does um, juniors and seniors. So there's that. And then um, things that I never would have had the opportunity to do on main campus, um, scholarships and financial aid. I work with the Cutter Foundation Financial Office um, to liaise with them for scholarship applications. I kind of manage that process on our side. Um, I also liaise with the billing. We don't do our own tuition billing. Cutter Foundation does that for us. So I send them all of the tuition information, and then I work with students to get payments, plans, and all that stuff. So we manage that. Uh, my office is also in charge of ordering textbooks, and we have got a fantastic um, lady, and she's been here just over a year now. Um, the, the Again, the lady that did that for us, the team member, um, she left, and so I did that job for a year. So I am uniquely cross-trained in that any job in my team's wheelhouse, I can do. I'm trained to do all of those. Um, and then I also handle um, academic integrity violations and that always that other duties as required. So whatever my boss needs me to do. Um, so I wear a lot of hats in yeah. this in this position. Um, but I do do still do, you know, some of the daily advising, um, particularly more this last year since we've been down a team member. And I do really love that process. I really do. Now, do you also do outreach or work with the outreach office? Yeah, occasionally we do. Um, and we also work very closely with the student affairs team. There's, um, they're down a couple of team members as well. So, you know, everybody's helping out and pitching in where we can. But yeah, we work with the outreach office. I've done some presentations for them um, about uh, like to some of their, um, they bring in like uh, high school students for workshops or whatever. And so I've talked to them about, you know, some of our majors and done a little bit of recruiting as well. So yeah, yeah, we, we all work very closely together. And so you're mentioning it being a smaller campus. So are there certain majors that, that are offered at, at your campus? Yeah. So we are strictly engineering. So um, we have chemical, electrical, petroleum, and mechanical. And Texas A&M was approached by the Cutter Foundation specifically for those majors because that is what um, Cutter needed at the time the campus was founded. So we opened in uh, 2003. So And we just signed our... Um, second, third, 10-year agreement. Um, they, they agree every 10 years, you know, to, to keep. So we are completely funded by the Cutter Foundation, which is uh, headed by, basically it was founded by Sheikha Moza, the current um, emir's mother. And her daughter now is, is running the day-to-day -day operations. But it was really to bring American education, higher education um, to Cutter. And so there are six American universities that make up Education City, and each of us has a specialty. So Texas A&M has the engineering. Northwestern has journalism and communications. Virginia Commonwealth has art and design. Um, Will Cornell has med school. Uh, Carnegie Mellon has um, biology and computer science. And then uh, Georgetown has um, their public service. So we're all very complementary. There's not a lot of overlap. 
Um, but if, you know, depending on what you want to do or where you want to go, but you want to stay here in Doha for your college education, you have a lot to choose from, from, you know, really well-known institutions. Oh, that's fascinating. So yeah. have there been situations where a student started at, in one major for one institution and then transferred in a way to another one? Yeah, we frequently get um, probably the the institution we get most of our um, transfers within Education City, it was going to be Carnegie Mellon um, because their computer science um, has has some courses that are are in common with our electrical engineering. Um, So we do see you, but typically once you get past your first, maybe two semesters, it's real difficult because there's, again, there's not a lot of overlap between all of the degree programs, but students do have the opportunity to cross-register um, at the other institutions. So like if I had a student who needed a creative arts credit and they wanted to go take the art history at Virginia Commonwealth, they can do that. So they get to do, they get to, you know, experience that university life as well. So we have students that do that. Um, we have frequently, we have students that do language classes at Georgetown. Um, so it's the, the Cutter Foundation calls it a multiversity. Um, so it gives them a unique opportunity that they really probably would not be able to do in, uh, on the main campus, you know, you, it would be nearly impossible to take a class at, in Chicago and in mm-hmm. College Station. But you can there. Right. We're literally right next door here. So that's awesome. Yeah. Now, are some of those classes, I guess, would you consider them like those bottleneck courses that they need for graduation, but they might not be able to register for it or it gets full. So they take it at, at one of the other other institutions. Not so much necessarily that because we we do a really good job of enrollment managing and planning our courses to make sure that we are offering enough seats um, in especially in the freshman level classes and we do have some bottleneck courses but um, it's really just they're they may not for their creative arts we might have a literature course mm-hmm. and they want to do an art they might want to do something uh, okay. different um, or they want to do psychology for social science and we have anthropology on the schedule so they're like hey I, I'm going to go over here to CMU and take this class which is fine. No, that's really yeah. cool. And I'm like, yeah. I want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> now, you've mentioned in a, in a past piece that you love helping students figure things out, like their major, their potential career paths, other interests. But I'm sure we have like newer advisors who might be listening or even seasoned advising professionals who might want to know, like, what is your process with helping students figure out their major or career paths? Or, or I guess another way would be like any advice that you have for advising professionals who might feel they struggle at that aspect of working with, with their students. You know, um, a lot of times, you know, at this institution, I have four majors. So if they don't want to do chemical, they could, and they want to stay in engineering here, they're kind of limited. But the first question I always ask them is, what did you want to be when, you know, when you were little, when you grew up? I wanted to be a train engineer. I still want to be a train engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've actually done that twice, two epic days. That's another story. That's another podcast. Um, But I always ask them what their passion is. What do they, if they could do anything, what would they choose to do? And for a lot of them, it is, they are in the right institution. Um, But my my general rule of thumb is I would rather help a student uh, be successful and be happy. Even if it's not in my institution, I want to help them find the right fit. And and I do have students who um, they thrive in their liberal arts courses in their histories, their political science, their arts. They do really well when it comes to the math and the science they're not interested or it's not their forte. And so we have those conversations. Um, so again, we, we do sit down and we say, okay, these are the classes that you're in now. How are your grades? 
here's the set of classes you're expected to take the next semester. Do you think you're going to meet the minimum GPA requirement? You're going to, you know, if not, let's like, you know, the typical advising conversations. Um, But really, I want to know what their passion is and what drives them and why did they choose to come to Texas A&M? For a lot of students, um, there's a lot of family pressure, of course, and that's that's global. Um, But I, you know, I've always heard uh, students say, well, my parents will only pay for this if I, you know, I become an engineer because engineering um, is probably the most respected profession over here currently. Um, So we're in high demand. Um, But then a lot of students would say, well, um, I got a scholarship from the Ministry of Education or from Cutter Petroleum. And so they're paying for it and they've got a job waiting for me when I graduate. So that's what I want to do. Um, or that's why I'm here. And some students will get their degree and then go on to not use it at all. But they did find something that they were interested in as an undergrad. It might have been um, an experience that they had with like maybe our leadership exchange program with the main campus or the service learning opportunities or maybe just a club or something um, or, you know, they got interested in something and they found it. So all of those conversations happen in our office. Um, it's it's about so much. I mean, it is about scheduling. We do have to do that because of our unique uh, process, because we do currently we are doing um, conflict free scheduling for every single student. Uh, we we take all of the classes that each student is expected to take in the next semester. We plan that out during advising. We dump all of that into uh, a scheduling software program and it creates a conflict free schedule. And then we put them in the classes and it's for the students, we try to make it as stress-free as possible. Um, our main campus way too big. <laughs> you get what you get. Um, but yeah, we guarantee that as long as they do what they're supposed to do and make their grades, we guarantee that the next set of classes is going to be there when they need to take them. Now, if they don't make grades, if they need to repeat a course, then we adjust. Um, and sometimes mm-hmm. the schedules are not as pretty as their original one. Um, but yeah, it really... Yeah. You just got to listen. You just got to listen to the students. Um, they might not tell you directly what they want to do or what's bothering them or what they're worried about, but they will tell you. You just need to be listening for it. And that's probably the one of the first things that I learned is to shut up and let them talk. I, I used to work right next door to an advisor who almost had a scripted conversation. And so when students would come in and ask questions and he would answer. And I'm like, that's not what she asked you. So you just got to listen. Maybe that person should record it themselves and they just hit play (laughs) depending on what question they get asked and answer that they want to give. Yeah. 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 And so again, that's, that was an example of what I did not want to do Mm -hmm. as an advisor. Um, Because they'll tell you everything you need to know. Maybe not in so many words. They may not come out and be blunt about it, but they will tell you. Oh, yeah. And I'm I'm seeing a pattern here where whether it was the history teaching or um, with your experience when you were a student as an academic uh, with your academic advisor or hearing another academic advisor next door. It's all about things that they're doing. We're like, I don't want to do that when I'm working with my student or, you know, my, my profession. So it's always doing the opposite. Yes, yes. yes. Um, I don't know that I'm necessarily contrarian by nature, but well, maybe I am, maybe I am contrarian by nature. (laughs) But again, I also, 
I, I want students to have a good experience to feel positive, to leave my office. And, and, you know, even if, even if I have just written them a letter saying your grades are not where they need to be. And for now you can't continue with us. Um, I want to help them find that resolution and figure out what the next step is. Even if it's not at our institution, even if it's not in our major, let me help you find something. I want them to take away something good from that experience, from every single advising experience. Even if I have to tell them no, for whatever reason, um, I always like to try to say, you know, if I have to say no, no, but let's look at something else. Let's right. try this. Absolutely. No, I think yeah. that's the perfect way, perfect way of saying it. Now, you were mentioning earlier about, you know, how advising was, when, when you had first started and now you've been in advising for 15 or more years now, how have you seen advising change over the years? And with everything that's happened with the pandemic and how we've kind of had to, you know, rethink a lot of things, where, in your opinion, where do you kind of see advising going in the future? Well, you know, when I started, um, a lot of advisors were like me and they had kind of just gotten into it and they, they might've been, administrators or whatever, and they kind of got advising dumped on them. Now, particularly, especially um, the more I interact with Nakata, I really see the professionalization of it and, and students really considering it as a career choice as undergrads or working on, you know, um, degrees in higher ed administration or student affairs, something like that. Um, it's, it's a conscious choice to be an advisor. Um, and mm -hmm. the scholarship is just exploded, which is amazing. Um, I do not have any postgrad degrees. I just have a baccalaureate, but uh, I do have a lot of experience. And so I feel like that is, um, is helpful to me. I, I'm very much a practitioner more than a theoretician, but um, I, I do see the professionalization of that. And I see it going more and more towards that, which is good. I think it's great for people to be trained to do the job that they are wanting to do instead of, you know, someone random coming in and just winging it. Like, cause there's, yeah. you can't, you can't just wing it. I mean, you can a little bit, but there are student rules. There are university policies. There are, when I was on the main campus, I was working with pre-service teachers. So there were state of Texas certification requirements. So we had to make sure they were meeting with all of their coursework and everything. And so you, you can't just, Say, oh, just go take these classes. So I'm really glad that advising has become more of a resource for students than just an option. Um, we do required advising on our campus. Um, and for some students, you know, it doesn't take long. They're right where they need to be. They're on track. Their grades are good. You know, it's a quick check-in. Um, for some students, it takes a little bit longer. We've got to have those deeper conversations. Um, what happens if, miss, I didn't make the grade? What, what's my next step? Can I retake it? What if, what if we're not offering it next semester? You know, all of those. So you have to have those conversations. But I do see that um, with the pandemic, technology has been amazing. Um, our office segued pretty quickly and pretty easily to uh, Zoom meetings. And, and for the freshmen and sophomores this year, we did, um, we emailed every single one of them. Like I sat down, I did their degree plan. I updated everything, said, here's what you need to take the next semester, emailed it to them. I said, let me know if you have questions. Here are my open Zoom hours. Come meet with me. Let's, you know, if we need to go over this, make sure you sign it and send it back so I know that you've received it. So that has worked really well for us. Um, but again, we're small. There's, there's two of us right now advising in the office. And so we are able to handle that 
that population of students. I, I know probably some bigger institutions are maybe not able to be as hands-on um, as we are just simply because of numbers. Um, and, but technology has been good for us. Um, our students have adapted beautifully. I feel bad for our freshmen, the, the students that came in in the fall of 2020, because they didn't get to have a typical freshman year. Most of them um, haven't been on campus because, and we, we did have our building open to students for a little bit, um, you know, till about early April. And then of course the numbers started to go up. And so the government said, everybody's doing remote learning, working from home. So we shifted back to fully online. So we've been working, we've been working remotely since March and we're hoping that we can be back on campus in the fall. Um, with our new freshmen, but I, I feel like we're going to have two freshman classes in the fall because our sophomores will be having their first on-campus experience. If, you know, if, if everything goes to plan and nothing, the numbers don't spike, we're hopeful that it will. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Uh, fingers crossed. And and that's a great point, though, in terms of you have the freshman class that technically has their their students. They've been doing the classes. They've been doing the work. Maybe they've been on campus for a little bit, but, you know, for the yeah. most part, been remote. And then if everything goes well and you're actually on campus, maybe full time in the fall. Yeah. What does that look like for them where it's like, well, I'm I've been a student, but not really a student because I haven't been on the campus in the classroom with, with the instructor, with the other students, being able to roam, roam about the campus. Has there been conversations or with, whether it's within advising or just in general at, at the, your campus in terms of how that might look for those sophomores that are kind of starting for the first time? Yeah, I think um, the student affairs folks are, they do our orientation in the summer and I'm hopeful we did an online orientation for summer 2020. So I'm hopeful that when we do the in-person orientation for, for um, summer 2021, we can, we can bring those kids, those sophomores um, in for some of the fun stuff, not necessarily, they don't need to go through all the advising and registration and it bits. Again, they've done that. They're, they're very well versed in all of that. Um, but for the, the, the parts where the students get to talk to upperclassmen and they get to hang out and they do some fun activities and, and all of that. I'm hoping that, that we can include those sophomores as well. So they can have that experience. And then, you know, maybe they can provide some experience for these brand new incoming students as well. Um, you know, we have, most of our students are local from Doha. About half of them are Qatari citizens and the other half um, are born and raised in Doha, but, uh, they have their citizenship of wherever their, their parents are from or doesn't have birthright citizenship like the U.S. does. Um, and we, then we do have a small international student population who truly come from, you know, India, Pakistan. Um, I've got one student in Georgia right now. He hasn't been to campus yet. He's still home. So hopefully for the fall, we can welcome those students, you know, 
and truly make them feel like they are part of the Aggie family and, and make up some for the, the crappy freshman year that they had. Yeah, I just I feel so bad for them. You know, we we I shouldn't I mean we we call them our babies. So I'm like, I feel bad for my babies, you mm-hmm. know, because yeah. They just they didn't get to do any of the normal stuff. Yeah, especially last year when I think a lot of institutions we thought, yeah, it's only gonna be a couple of weeks and then we'll, we'll be back yeah. on campus. And nope, over a year later, here we are. But I, they have the, the juniors and seniors yeah. navigated, especially the seniors, their last year online and their senior design. Each mm-hmm. each of our majors, you know, they culminate with the senior design sequence and project. And it's, I mean, like, it's not unusual during a normal year to see seniors in the building at all hours working on these projects. And they did it all from home. They were very resilient. They adapted beautifully. Like I'm very, very proud of the way that they handled everything, all of the challenges that got thrown at them. Cause it, it was, I mean, it's, it's difficult two semesters anyway, the senior sequence and then to throw in a pandemic and worry and stress on top of that, you know, and, and some of them were international students. So their families are back in their home countries and, you know, they can't get home or, you know, they, their families can't get here to, to pick them up, you know, so it's, it was a lot to worry about and they, they rose to the challenge. Oh yeah. And to think just how quickly a lot of them adapted and they're like, you know what, if this is the situation we're in, we're going to make the most of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. If I can't attend my commencement graduation ceremony or you know, I can't be in the classroom, but you know, do I wait and, you know, hopefully things work out and I come back later to finish or I'm already on my roll to, to get my degree. Let me, let me go and yeah. just get these classes done. So, you know, they've, they've made it work and they've been very successful at it too. Yeah. Uh, now, one question I have is, you know, you, you got the academic advising uh, position and then, you know, you get to Doha and then it's like, well, hey, <laughs> I'm leaving, <laughs> but we had this administrator role and oh my gosh, what do I do? And any advice for, for, I guess, for individuals who might be an academic advisor or counselor right now, and they're thinking about wanting to make that jump into an administrator role. Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I would say consider the upper administration. um, That like if you move up to an administrator role, consider who's above you. um, And can you work Mm -hmm with that team. Um, I'm, like I said, very blessed. I have a great supervisor um, and I can go to him with anything. And he truly does advocate for our team and for our office to the Dean's council and to the upper level administrators. Um, So that's very, very critical. Uh, If I didn't have him, I, you know, I might be reconsidering, you know, staying in the position um, because he, he really does do a lot for us. Um, And he also, he's over, um, academic services and student affairs. So again, we all work really closely together and, you know, he elevates things that need to be elevated. And, you know, he also keeps a lot of stuff from coming down on us as well. Um, But uh, yeah, I would say if you're considering a move into administration, consider who's above you and who you'll be reporting to. And can you work with this person? Um, Are they, do they know what you do? What, what your office is, you know, because some upper level administrators, you know, they, they, may have never served in an advising role, maybe not as a faculty advisor or what. And because a lot of upper level administrators are faculty, at least on our campus. Um, And so it's been a while maybe since they were in the student seat. 
their advising might have been very different. They might not have had advising. So it's also very important to, to make sure you can advocate for yourself, for your team, and make sure they understand how critical what we do is to student success. We're very proud of our first year retention rate. We're very proud of our four and five year graduation rate on this campus. Um, and I'm going to brag on my team. It is because we do, we, we start with them their freshman year and we, we don't let up. Um, we do a lot of handholding is maybe not the right word, but you know, we make sure that they know we are here. We are a resource. We can connect them to other resources if needed. Um, so it's very important that the administration know that we are critical to student success and those graduation rates would not be near as high if they didn't have us. <laughs> we did go through our um, ABET accreditation last semester. And one of the things that, that the accreditation team noted was that the advising is very robust on our campus. And that was something that they, they really picked up on and commented. And the dean was very impressed. So. That was nice. Yeah, so good job to everyone on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you're mentioning, you know, you, in this answer, you mentioned resource, and you've you've talked about being a resource for other questions that, that we've asked already in this podcast interview, and you've mentioned Nakata being a resource. So maybe we talk about that. Can you talk about your involvement in Nakata and how that's been? Sure, sure. I am. Wow i I wouldn't be the advisor I am today um, without Nakata. When I first started, uh, my first my first conference was in 2009 in San Antonio and I really didn't know what I was getting into. And I was really overwhelmed because it was so big, but Texas has a lot of advisors and San Antonio was a relatively easy conference, you know, to attend. And because most of us, it was a day or so drive if that. Um, but I, and I was like, wow, there are all these advisors. I really, I want to be a part of this. These are the movers and shakers of this career path that I have chosen. Um, so I want to be involved. And there are, we also have a professional development organization on our campus called University Advisors and Counselors. And I got involved in that organization. And through that, um, again, I met some really influential folks that have become some of my closest friends. Um, a shout out to Sam, you know, Sam Murdoch. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, Sam has kind of mentored me and taken me under his wing. And he was like, you need to be involved in Nakata. And hey, I'm going to nominate you for this. And I'm going to do that. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, he nominated me for my first uh, leadership position. He said, okay, Mather, um, I need you to, I need you to just listen. And I was like, what have you done, Murdoch? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so but Nakata has been hugely influential. Um, and I have met some of my closest friends through Nakata. Um, you know, there's, I have a, a we call it our Nakata Girl Tribe group that we we chat all the time. We get together for Zoom um, meetings occasionally. and But it's really good to know that there are other people out there, not just in my institution, not just on my campus, that also share the passion um, and that they really want to see students be the best that they can be and that they really want to, um, you know, contribute not just to student success, but to everyone's success because the scholarship you know, I read the journal. And so that makes me a better advisor because of the work they've done that. So it's not just for students, but it's for me as well and for you and for all of the members of Nakata. So yeah, that's, that is a, a cost that, you know, my institution, we don't always have the budget, you know, um, that's a, that's a cost I will pay myself. I will absolutely make sure that my membership is always current. Yeah. Cause, yeah there's so much that you can get out of that membership and then just 
hopefully we're back to attending conferences in person and be able to see one another. And that's where you also get to make those networking connections with with others. And one of the things that you participated was the Emerging Leaders Program as as a mentor. So can you talk about your decision to apply for that? And, you know, any advice you have for those that might be interested, whether they are looking to maybe apply as a leader or as a mentor? Yeah, I would love to talk. ELP was such a great experience. And um, that's actually how we met. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's I applied as a I I didn't didn't realize that you had you didn't have to be an emerging leader before you could be a mentor until someone said, no, 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 you've had a leadership position you qualify, we would love, and you know, I didn't really think about it until someone said, Hey, you should, you should apply to be a mentor. And so again, I get people put bugs in my ears and I try to listen to them. Um, so yeah, I did apply and my mentee, it was fabulous. And we actually already had a working relationship because when I was, um, on the steering committee for the advising communities division, she was one of my, um, commission chairs. So we had already worked together for a couple of years and we both like decided that we really wanted to continue that relationship. And we still chat very frequently. Um, But yeah, that program, I have seen so much good come out of it. And it's just, it's so worth it because there's questions that get asked that you might not have thought to ask or to answer. um, And that kind of help you reconsider things in a different light. Um, And I really like that Nakata does not define leadership as only holding a chair position or as a, you know, as a board member or whatever. It's like their, their definition of leadership is broad and that gives you so many ways to contribute. You can write, you can, you know, do presentations, you can be a part of ELP, you can hold those leadership positions, but it's not limited to just that. And I really like that. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. Speaking of Nakata, too, this is an interview that's going to get posted in June. And during the month of June, Charlie Nutt is retiring. And, you know, you've shared your thoughts about Charlie in a video compilation for Nakata's Global Advising Week. And you shared a story that I got to share at a Cal State webinar that Charlie was a part of. But is there anything you want to say to Charlie or start a Charlie story you want to share on the podcast? Oh, gosh, Charlie is just... I mean, Charlie, right now, Charlie is Nakata. You think of, of Nakata, you think Charlie Nutt. And I, I'm i excited for him to get to retire and maybe be slightly less active, although I don't think Charlie knows how to be slightly less active. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I'm also excited to see what direction the, the new executive director um, will take us in as well. I think there's some really great opportunities coming up for Nakata. Um, so I'm excited to see what what direction she leads us in. But yeah, Charlie is just, again, the he's just so personable. And I never thought that he would know who I was, but he knows who I am. And he remembers, and this is a 10,000 member organization. Mm-hmm. How does he do that? That never fails to amaze me. But that's just Charlie. Yeah, he's he's got a good memory. <laughs> he does. He really does. And he's got a yeah. good indication in terms of like when he sees someone, he's like, I know what they're about. So maybe we could have them do this or join this yes. committee or do this project. Yeah. He, you know, he is really good about matching people with, with their strengths, you know, and, and things that like areas that the organization needs. Yeah. He's really good at that. He does have a knack for that. And, and yeah. And I think a lot of people listen are like, yep, he, he tapped me to do this or this. And I was busy, but I still did it. And it's like, right. You, Cause you can't, you can't, you can't say, say no. no. <laughs> Even though he will say, 
you can tell me no. It's like, mm, can I really? Uh, no. <laughs> so when Charlie Nutt asks you to do something, you say yes. Yep. Absolutely. And a lot of times good things come out of it. So, oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And as we wind down on time, let's do a speed round of questions. Okay. Now, you like to travel, you like to cook, you like music and attending concerts. So let's let's do like a favorites questions list. Okay. So favorite band? Foo Fighters. Favorite concert you've attended? Backstage of the Foo Fighters. <laughs> <laughs> favorite concert venue? Um... That's a tough one. I've been really lucky to go to some good ones. Um, probably uh, the Woodlands, the Cynthia Woods Mental Pavilion in the Woodlands, uh, right outside of Houston. It's beautiful. It's a great venue. I've been on the lawn. I've been in the in the covered seats. I have stood. I have sat. It's a great venue. It's easy to get to. It's very friendly, and it's just really pretty. Yeah. Well, once everything yeah. kind of opens back up, <laughs> maybe I'll go there. The favorite place yeah. you've traveled to? Oh, Barcelona. I love Barcelona. Yeah, it's a beautiful city. Another place I haven't been yeah. to. I'll have to add that to my list. I, I feel yes, like I'm, I'm asking you these questions so I can make my own list. <laughs> Let me do okay. what Amanda's done. <laughs> favorite type of food to make? Favorite type of food to make? I've been really into Asian and Indian cooking lately. Um, I switched to being vegetarian about a year and a half ago, and Thomas is still... Eh, he he eats mostly what I cook, but uh, he he will throw in some you know grilled chicken or whatever. Um, but yeah, I've been really experimenting a lot with um, Asian and Indian. Um, I've learned uh, how to cook tofu. I've learned how to cook um, seitan, all that stuff. So that's been a whole lot of fun for me to to learn to do that. Yeah, tofu is great. You just put it in anything. It's so versatile. It really is. Yeah. Favorite food to eat? Mexican. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's usually, if it's not the first thing we get when we get to Texas, uh, it's either it's either Mexican food or Whataburger. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I, I love me a good Mexican restaurant, yeah. And if yeah. listeners have any questions or want to connect, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, email me. I Probably the easiest email address is amather at tamu.edu. So amather at tamu.edu. Um, and that will get forwarded to my cutter address. Um, so it, absolutely. I would love to answer any questions or talk more about my experience, whatever. If you're thinking about moving internationally and you want some advice, shoot me a message. Awesome. And we've reached time for the interview and I wish we could have another hour and we'll have to definitely have you on again, especially <laughs> since Colin wasn't able to make it with it because of internet connection issues. We'll have to have you on again so we both could be here for for that. But Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. This was a whole lot of fun. We'll definitely do it again and hope to see you at a future conference. Cross your fingers, Cincinnati. All right. Yes. Yes. Thanks to Amanda for offering insights into adjusting to life in a new country, moving into advising administration, and the influence of Nakata on her career. Coming up now, it's Dr. David Gray. Okay, I am very excited to have the opportunity to speak to our next guest, and that is David Gray. 
David is the chief executive and a founder member of UK Advising and Tutoring, UCAT, the UK's Higher Education Academic Advising Association. Prior to working for UCAT, he was an academic faculty member at various universities in the UK and has taught computer science and software engineering for almost 25 years. He has led institution-wide projects at several institutions to enhance advising and at Hull he developed an innovative program to enhance student employability through the creation of an in-house software company which created mission-critical applications for the emergency services. He is now a recovering technoholic, having realized that he prefers the company of people to computers. David is an active researcher and author in the fields of academic advising and regularly presents invited sessions on academic advising at international conferences and higher education institutions. He is the principal author of the UCAT Professional Framework for Advising and Tutoring and led the work to create the UCAT Professional Recognition Scheme, which awards recognition to those who can demonstrate effective achievement against the competencies of the UCAT framework through the creation of a portfolio of evidence of advising practice. He holds a bachelor's degree and PhD in engineering, is a senior fellow of the HEA, a UCAT recognized leader in advising, and a higher ed consultant working regularly with institutions to enhance their academic advising practice. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Colm. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I am delighted because I, I've spoken to you on a number of occasions and you are always fascinating. So the opportunity for a kind of a longer form interview is very exciting for me and I think listeners will, will really enjoy it. And I said to you, I suppose, before we started recording that we always like to open with the the question around how you you found your way into to higher education and, and kind of where you are now. We've heard your some of your accomplishments in your bio, but was higher ed and, and teaching something that you always wanted to do or how did that come about? Oh, yeah, I, I always had a plan right from being a small boy to, to, to be leading a higher education advising <laughs> association at some point in my life. Absolutely not. No, it was, um, I guess, like most people, you know, the path you end up taking is probably not the one you thought you were going to take from the outset. Um, so I, I, I started out by studying engineering and I thought I was going to end up as an engineer working in an engineering company. Um, and while I was doing my degree, I, I was sponsored by uh, an organisation in the UK that worked in the defence industry. Um, so I was involved in various defence related projects that I realised didn't really align with my own value set. And I decided that's not where I wanted to be. Uh, so when I, when I completed my bachelor's degree and I was looking for a, some sort of opportunity, um, life threw a chance in my direction. And that was a chance to work as a research associate at, uh, at Durham University on a project in the engineering department there. Um, so that's what I did and I ended up uh, studying my PhD. Um, really enjoyed the academic lifestyle and I thought this is something I'd like a bit more of. Um, so at that point I started applying for lecturing positions and then ended up as a sort of lecturer in higher education. And it kind of all went from there. So um, I moved between a couple of universities ended up working at Hull University for uh, about 18 years, which is the longest I was in any one place, um, and held various roles there. Um, but my focus really was around learning and teaching um, and the student experience. Um, and it was just something that I really felt quite passionate about, supporting the students, 
um, and supporting my colleagues to try and support the students in the best way possible, whether that was through things like the advising that we did or just through the learning and teaching experience that we provided to students. Um, but that's really where my, my, my passion for that lay. Um, and then I was given an opportunity to lead an institution-wide project there on advising um, and for, for various reasons, um, that, that perhaps aren't the happiest reasons uh, for, for, for an employee, I decided that uh, that was a, a good opportunity to seize. So I did and I spent a very happy uh, year and a half leading a project there together with, um, together with a great bunch of student interns who were co-constructing the sort of um, the revisions to the advising process with us. Um, and in doing that, having to work with lots of academic staff members to help them um, see how they might do advising differently. Um, and I guess the other thing that was, was happening at that time is in my role supporting learning and teaching, I was seeing a lot of new academic staff come into their positions um, and really feel the pressure of academia, really finding it very difficult to cope with the pressures and everything that was expected of them and all the kind of training they had to go through. And that training wasn't really particularly preparing them very well for the pressures of the role. So I thought I really wanted to do something to help and support those people. Um, so I took a change of direction and I moved out of being a, an academic and went to become an educational developer for three years. So I moved off to, a, to another university, um, not far from where I live in the north of England, uh, a small university, very different in character than the one I'd been at, um, and worked there for three years as an educational developer. And then, uh, as often happens in higher education, there were, there were changes in the institution uh, and I found myself resting between engagements. Um, and having been involved in UCAT right from the outset, um, the UCAT board saw an opportunity to maybe make use of me in a, in a sort of more permanent capacity and took a risk and decided to employ me as the, the first employee and chief executive. So I jumped at the chance and I've been loving it ever since. So that's how I ended up where I am now. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. I don't think there was any risk in uh, on the the behalf of the the UCAT board. I don't think they could have made a surer bet if if they tried. But for listeners, because we we have a lot of listeners all around the world who might not be as familiar with UCAT as you and I are, can you you talk to us? I mean, you you are you know a founding member uh, as well as being the the, the CEO. Um, can you talk to us a, a little bit about UCAT, how how it came about, and the work that kind of UCAT undertakes? Yeah. Um... So UCAT has been in existence since 2015. So we're, what, six years old now, maybe coming up for our seventh birthday. Um, and UCAT was founded, was the brainchild of Penny Robinson, who um, many NACADA members will know. Um, Penny has been a, a member of NACADA for a very long time and a member of the Global Initiatives Committee and so on. 
Um, and, and through her membership of NACADA and attendance of NACADA events, she had a conversation with Charlie Nutt one day and said, it would be great if we had an association like this in the UK. Um, and through, through NACADA, Charlie had built some links with the UK already um, and agreed to try and help Penny put together an association that, that would bring together advising professionals in the UK. Uh, so the first event was held, I think that was 2015, 2016 in Sheffield as a sort of launch event, a sort of small conference. And from that, uh, a sort of dedicated bunch of people came together to found UCAT. Um, and, and we grew from there, really. Um, so we support um, we support those who advise here in the UK. We have it's an almost exclusively faculty advising system. So almost all the advisors that exist are faculty members, academic faculty members, um, who advise on top of many other roles that they perform. Um, and it's a role that they're not really they're not really given any preparation to undertake. So many of them are just asked to take on this role and it's sort of assumed that they know how to do it. Um, so I think some of them find it a challenge. Um, some of them are very passionate about it. Um, our role as an organization is to help them all try and enhance their practice and to help institutions develop their practice to better support student success. So um, we, work with, we work with our members who um, are the advisors on the ground um, we work with the institutions who employ them and we have, I think we're slightly different from, from an association like NACADA for instance, um, in that we are, NACADA is a non-profit organisation and, and so is UCAT, but in the UK to be a non-profit organisation we have to be a registered charity and as a registered charity we have to demonstrate that we have a public benefit, that the activities that we undertake benefit a, a section of the, of the general public um, and in our case that section of the general public is those who advise and their students so be, because of that we have a duty to reach beyond our members so we're always trying to work to support advisors wherever they are in institutions across the, across the UK whether or not they're members of UCAT. So many of the activities that we do, like our regular webinar series, are open and freely available to anybody so that we meet that duty of, of uh, benefiting the general public. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's it's interesting that that distinction, I suppose, exists in the UK, but I think there is a very clear kind of uh, public service revit in what UCAT does. And I, you know, I suppose it highlights the the importance of education, and uh, I think that 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 is it's good that that almost requirement is there, and because it it does mean that other people maybe outside of you know academic uh, advising or or personal tutoring spheres learn a little more about the work that advisors or personal tutors do, uh, which, you know, makes a big difference to uh, the lives of, of students, faculty members and universities writ large. Now, one of the things that I, uh, I suppose kind of linked to that is um, in terms of the because I suppose if, if one was to look at UCAT's website or, or around advising in the UK, you'd see talk about personal tutoring. 
is it the case that the, the personal tutoring and academic advising, that one can use them completely um, interchangeably um, or are, are there differences? And I know that you, you have written uh, in terms of, I think the, the article was perceptions and principles of, of personal tutoring. So, um, you know, uh, I suppose interested in, in your take on the personal tutoring, academic advising in the in a UK context. Yeah, um, I, that's a good question. Are they are they synonymous? Is really what we're saying there. Are these two terms synonymous? I think the problem we suffer from in the UK is that we don't have a single term that relates to this process that we know as academic advising. So it goes by many different names, um, and. Uh, in some institutions it is called academic advising, in others it might be called things like academic mentoring, um, but the two most common terms are personal academic tutoring or personal tutoring. Um, and yes, broadly they are synonymous. So personal tutoring is broadly synonymous with what will be known as faculty advising in the US. Um, I think I think over the years my views on this have changed slightly. Um, and whereas I thought they, they were very, very similar. Um, they are very similar, but I think there are also some key differences as well. And I think from the UK, from the personal tutoring perspective, the, the, the personal tutor has a role that also has a, a, a sort of pastoral element to be that, f that first point of contact for the student. If the student has any kind of issues that they're available, you know, as and when the student requires to engage with that personal tutor. So the personal tutor can then um, assist the student by connecting them to the right support services within the institution. So there is that more um, non-academic element to it as well. Um, and it, it's not always the element that, that personal tutors relish about the role. I think some of them don't find it easy to to have to listen to some of those non-academic problems that students present with. Um, but it is an important part of the role. And, and what that looks like varies from institution to institution. So, you know, even where institutions are using the, you might have more than one institution using the, the term personal tutoring, what they mean in those two different institutions might be slightly different. Um, and in some institutions, it may well be that, that, that the advisor, the, the, the personal tutor, the faculty member is that first point of contact for those non-academic matters. Um, in other institutions, then really they provide other support services that try to provide that pastoral role so that the, the personal tutor focuses only on the academic element. Um, but you can't ever, you, you can't separate the academic element from the other elements of somebody's life. Nobody parcels their life into neat boxes, my academic life and my personal life and, you know, my professional life. Um, life spills over from one to another. So, you know, you can see a student who comes to talk to you about an academic issue. Maybe they're having a problem submitting an assignment. And as you have a conversation with them and you listen to that student, that's when you start to find out that there are other issues in their life that are actually impacting on their ability to study. And you have to be able to listen to those and, um, really understand what issues the student is, is um, being impacted by so that you can connect them to the right sources of help so that you then help them overcome those particular challenges so that they can be more successful in their studies. Yeah, well, thank you for kind of explaining, I think really useful to, to listeners to, to get, uh, I suppose, a, 
an idea about like what personal tutoring is in in the UK context and and how it it does differ maybe slightly because there there will be always be differences. I mean, there are even differences between say the Irish system and the UK system. So certainly between UK system and and maybe the the system in the US or or in Canada, but. One of the things that I suppose everyone who who works in advising, tutoring, probably in higher ed is invested in is student success. Mm -hmm. And I know this is a topic that you have written about. So, again, interested in hearing your thoughts on on student success, because I suppose it, it grappling with what it is as a concept, it's almost like herding, you know, feral cats. But for you, what does student success look like? And how, I suppose, does personal tutoring or advising, you know, have a role to play in student success? I think my views on student success don't always uh, don't always accord with those of university senior management. And I know that in some presentations I've done in some institutions, I've made senior management turn a funny colour. So, um, my view is that, that student success is whatever the student defines success to be. Students come to university to study for very many reasons. Um, some of them have a really clear idea of why they're there and what they want to get out of the experience that they maybe have a you know a vocation to follow into a particular profession and they're studying a course deliberately to help them do that. Um, many students these days go into higher education just because well it's the next thing that happens on your educational journey once you've finished the, the you know, previous stages of education. Higher education is the natural successor. Um, sometimes they know exactly what they want to study. Sometimes they don't. They don't often have a clear idea when they come into university where they want to go afterwards. And some students enter into higher education not because they want to, but because there are some pressures on them that somebody else is suggesting that they should go through higher education. And often those students are the ones who have a, an unhappy experience as they go through the process. Um, but you will find you know, students who made an, a, a choice of course that didn't suit them or in, who are in higher education because they didn't want to be there may have different aspirations for their life you know a student may be studying a course in i don't know in engineering but actually what they really want to do is is go and join the army or go off and volunteer in in, in a third world country and you know help out in a developing nation work with children overseas you know they might have a vision for their life and success is about helping them achieve that vision and for some students, staying in university is not the right thing to do. You know, all universities focus on this issue of retention and retaining students. I haven't yet met the student who walks into a university and says, I would like to be retained, please. No, students don't want that. Students want to succeed at whatever it is they want to succeed at. So, you know, if for them they are unhappy on their course and they want to go and, you know, volunteer with children in Africa, great. Morally, that's the right thing for them. If that's their dream, then my role as an advisor is to help them um, try and achieve their goals, however I can do that. And sometimes that view of success runs in tension to what an institutional view of success might be. The institutional view of success is having students come in into the, into the institution and then progressing through that institution and then completing their degree within a certain amount of time and hopefully achieving a degree with a good outcome, you know, with a good set of grades at the end of that degree because that's how the institutions get measured. And the more students you can get to, to that stage, 
that's what the institutional view of success looks like but that isn't necessarily what success means to a student and I think for us as advisors it's really about working with the student's own view of success and helping them achieve what it is that they're trying to achieve so for me advising advising has to be a very intentional process a very proactive um, and structured process that helps students to think through their goals, their, their academic goals, their career goals, their life goals, their professional goals, and help them take steps to achieve those goals so that they can then achieve, you know, attain their own vision of a successful future. I think Peter Hagen describes it very nicely that as advisors, what we're doing is helping our students co-author a future vision of themselves, their future story. We're helping them write that future story together. Um, and I love that definition. I think it's it's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's a, a lovely way of putting it. And I suppose kind of building on that then for listeners who are maybe interested in finding out a bit more or reading more around student success, are, are, are there kind of authors that you would recommend or, or any advice that you would offer to listeners around um, kind of that topic? My goodness. Um, I'm not sure I can give you an answer to that one on the spot, Colm. This might be one of those bits you need to edit out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to go back and look at the. I mean, there are there are lots of examples of projects from the UK. The things that stand out to me from the UK are some pieces of work that uh, people like Liz Thomas have done over the years. Some large projects that were funded by um, uh, Advance HE, as it is now, what was formerly the Higher Education Academy and other organisations. Um, the What Works projects. And they were focused on students' uh, retention and success. Um, and various of, of Liz Thomas's collaborators as well, like Mance York, um, who have looked at this issue of student success over the years in the UK. But those What Works projects really focused on um, working with a wide range of institutions to have them put forward examples of things that they thought were making a difference to the success of their students. Um, so it's got a great collection of things that you can do to help um, help students succeed in various different ways. And from those, they pull together a collection of advice and guidance. And then various other people built on those and produced toolkits and things that are really useful. So there's a really nice one called the HERE Toolkit that came out of uh, Nottingham and Trent and Bradford University um, that provides you know, really sort of focused guidance on what people can do to help support student success. And it's not it's not all about advising. It's about things we can do in the curriculum, you know, in the sort of uh, in the classroom experience, um, but also beyond that as well. And in the kind of social experience and the orientation processes we provide to students um, that will help students feel more at home and feel more like they belong to the institution. That It's a natural home for them um, and therefore that helps them feel more settled and more likely to succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I knew you'd have. Uh, a few uh, good uh, tips and, and guidance for for listeners. And I, you know, I, 
all of these kind of are, are they're, they're linked together. But another kind of area that you have written on and, and worked with, I think, with George Steele is around technology and mm-hmm. the, the use of technology in advising and, and tutoring. And I suppose just interested in, in hearing around that, because that is a, you know, a topic that kind of comes up time and time again. And I suppose if you're starting out or, or even for some advice, it's like, well, what, what does how what, what sort of technology can I use? What What is going to help? And when there are there are any number of, of bits and pieces out there. But I suppose just interested in, in the work you have have done around the the use of technology in this space. So I guess I should caveat my uh, my remarks with the, the comment that I'm a recovering what is a recovering technoholic. <laughs> um, technology is great. You know, I've spent my entire career working with technology and um, and as a software engineer building technologies. Uh, but I'm firmly of the opinion that technology is a tool and it has a purpose and you use it for that right purpose. And you don't try and use a technology just because it exists or you try and use a technology that was built for a different purpose for something else if it doesn't fit you know, easily. Um, and that's the view that I try and bring to advising as well. So. Um, I think I know you've had George on the podcast before, and George has, has proposed a model um, of uh, different types of technology um, and how they can be used to support advising. And in that model, he's got he's got three sorts of technologies. Um, he's got technologies that might be considered sort of uh, engagement technologies. So that will be the sort of communication technologies, things like. Um, email or social media or things like SMS, um, you know, those those things that allow us to engage and communicate with students. There are technologies that might be considered the learning technologies, so things like learning management systems or, or virtual learning environments, as they're often called in the UK, um, e-portfolio systems, those sorts of things. And then we have the more sort of uh, educational enterprise technologies. Uh, I think George calls these service technologies in his in his model. So those are things like student record systems, student information systems, uh, maybe things like early alert systems, you know, analytic systems, systems that provide us data and information about students to actually manage the educational process. Um, and all three of these have got uses in advising. You can bring any of those to bear. Um, I think. I think you need to, like I say, you need to make make use of the right technology at the right time and for the right reason. So um, communication technologies, we've all seen in the last sort of 18 months because of the pandemic, how communication technologies have enabled us to connect to and advise our students when we've all been working remotely, when we haven't been on campus, when we haven't been able to meet with them face to face. And these kind of technologies have been around for a very long time. I think they've been more widely used previously to advise students in the US than they have in the UK. In the UK, advising had always been this very sort of face-to-face process, often through a sort of one-to-one meeting with a student. Um, And and I think we've realised over the course of this pandemic that actually 
these technologies allow us to access or allow us to access our students more easily and our students to access us more easily. So it's far easier often to engage with a student through the online communication technologies at a time that's convenient for the student and you don't have issues of location to worry about. It removes lots of barriers to access um, and just makes it easier to connect that advisor to that student. And many institutions that I've spoken to have had this experience through the through the pandemic and have said yes we want to hold on to those technologies because we realize it makes it easier to uh, to connect to our students so even when they come back to campus and they're face to face we're going to carry on using those kind of technologies um, and then i guess the other the other sort of way for me in which technologies have got a big part to play is is through this focus of advising being intentional a really intentional and structured process. To me, advising is is a part of the learning process. It is no different from any other form of, of learning and teaching. My role as an advisor is the same as my role as, as, as an academic. Um, it is to facilitate the learning of my student. And what's different is what they might be learning about. So it's more, it's more metacognition, meta-learning, that they're doing through the advising process but i can still use all the same kind of tools and techniques that i would use through an lms to try and structure and scaffold that in some ways to to guide the development of my students so um, things like learning management systems and those flipped approaches to advising where you take a very you try and develop a very structured program of, of interactions for students to engage with that will help them grow and develop um, that's something that i've done a lot of work with george on over over the last sort of few years um, and I suppose that from the other sort of area of technology, the, the, the sort of service area, um, I think one thing that's been becoming more prevalent in the UK recently has been the use of learning analytics or what might be called predictive analytics in some, some cases, depending on how, how intelligent the system is that's trying to use the data. But the goal of all these learning analytics systems is to actually tell us something about the behaviour of our students, to provide data that then can help us as advisors actually give them better advice to help them succeed academically. Um, and these, these can be really useful systems, um, but at the same time, to go back to my caveat from the beginning, they provide us with data. They don't give us the full story of the student, and you can't know and advise the student unless you're actually having a conversation with that student and can get that human story and that human perspective from them. You don't get that through the tools and the data. So although they can be useful as a kind of a flag or an indicator, that's really, in, in, my, in my personal opinion, that's all those kind of systems can be. They can be an indicator to say, you might want to have a conversation with this student and you can see something about how that student is operating or behaving in their studies and you can maybe use that to give them some advice and guidance um, but they don't tell us any more than that yeah i i've seen a, a quote attributed to different people but the the quote is uh and it's around social media but i think equally applicable to technology where social media should enhance your life not become your life 
And I think uh, I, I would feel similar around technology. It can be really useful as, as a tool, but I think, as you've said, that that bigger picture, not losing sight of the, the personal aspect. It's, it's a bit like stats and, and, and sports. If all you're focusing on is the, the stats, you're probably losing sight of, of the, the bigger picture. So I think uh, useful ad advice there. And you certainly have done some, some really interesting uh, pieces with George Steele and uh, people can, can check that out. Now, we are recording this in uh, June and, uh, you know, Charlie Nutt, uh, the, the venerable Charlie Nutt is, is moving towards the, the end of his tenure as, uh, at, at NACADA. And one of the, the really nice pieces that uh, at the UCAT conference recently uh, was the, the Charlie Nutt Award. And I suppose I, I'm interested in, in hearing as, uh, as somebody who helped bring the Charlie Nutt uh, Award uh, about, uh, a little bit more about um, the, the Charlie Nutt Award, how it came about, and I suppose your, your own uh, work with Charlie over the, the years, David. Yeah, um, so, I have to give full credit to Oscar here as well and LVSR, the Dutch Advising Association. This was a joint initiative between UCAT and LVSR. Um, and I think it came out of, if we're honest, it came out of a late night conversation between Oscar and I, um, which is where many things start. Um, I think we were, we knew Charlie was, had announced his retirement. And I think both associations thought they wanted to do something to honor Charlie. Um, and to recognise the contribution that he's made to advising globally. Charlie has done a, you know, an enormous amount, more than anybody else, to bring together advisors from across the world um, and to get them sharing practice and talking to one another. Uh, so we thought, you know, we thought about the normal things. What do you give somebody when they retire? You know, we give them a gold clock or a, you know, the kind of, you know, a long service award or whatever. And we thought, no, actually, the thing that is really dear to Charlie's heart is the global piece, connecting advisors globally um, and bringing people together. And we thought, was there something we could do in some way that would that would have some longevity and recognise Charlie's contribution in that way? So we thought, what if we created an award that two associations will, will award every year? It will be awarded annually and jointly by UCAT and LVSR to somebody, an ordinary advisor, who has done something, not because it's part of their job role, but because they're passionate about what they do in advising, but they've done something to bridge um, bridge international boundaries, to connect advisors from different nations together, to do something that's mutually beneficial for all involved. Um, and to really, you know, somebody who is really, I guess, living out of that spirit that Charlie has embodied doing the kind of things that Charlie has done, um, but doing it because they're passionate about advising, not because it's their job. So that's where the idea came from. Um, and, uh, you know, we were delighted to award the first the first award this year at the UCAT conference. Um, and really there was no, there was no contest when we stopped to think about who the initial recipient should be. Um, you know, we awarded the first award to Gavin Farber and, and Gavin has done so much to actually bring together people from all over the world. He works with people in all sorts of different nations and continents, um, you know, entirely in his own time and as of his own free will. 
um, and he really gives of himself to actually support advisors everywhere and that was really in the spirit of what this award was about so for us you know he was the, he was the perfect inaugural recipient um, yeah so that's where the award came from and uh, and uh, yeah and I, I guess the other part of that question was my work with Charlie over the years um, my work with Charlie I, I guess began when I when I became involved in UCAT as a founder member um, and that's when I got to meet Charlie um, and uh, got connected to Charlie and other members in the Nakada leadership and Charlie has just been so incredibly supportive over the years um, Charlie's a great friend but also an incredible mentor and teacher um, you know I'm very fortunate to have the role that I have in UCAT I guess I'm I'm, I'm the UCAT equivalent of Charlie not although it's on a much smaller scale um, and, and I don't have quite the same sort of shoe collection I don't think but uh, um, Charlie has been an incredible friend and an incredible teacher and I have learned so much from the way that Charlie engages with people and connects people and supports people and I cannot begin to thank him enough he's had a huge and profound influence on my my life my professional life um, and um, I'm lost for words. He's an incredible well, gentleman. I, I, yeah, but I think his his influence is, is clear because you have you know taken up that that mantle of working internationally. I mean, uh, I I know that you you present internationally, you work uh, across boards. Even the fact that you brought, I suppose. Um, you can uh, and LBSR together to for a, a kind of a a joint conference as such this this year. I mean, can you talk a little bit about you know how that came about because that's really interesting that kind of these two organisations came together and you know held their their own conferences that that but that allowed for overlap both um, you know for kind of. Uh, presenters and for attendees oh it came about in exactly the same way as my career column it was intentional right from the start I'd always ever since I've been a little boy I always wanted to hold a joint advising conference with the Dutch uh, no um, serendipity is the honest answer um, you know the, the the pandemic intervened and changed the plans for an awful lot of conferences over the last two years um, Oscar had very kindly invited me to um, deliver the opening keynote at the LVSR conference back in um, I think it was March or April 2020 and of course that conference was postponed because of the pandemic and that conference didn't get rescheduled until March this year. Um, I think Oscar was hoping that I might still provide the keynote but when we looked at the dates we realised we'd managed to schedule the UCAT conference at exactly the same time um, and we thought we thought or hoped at that point that the UCAT conference might happen physically might happen in person and it will be very difficult for me to be in two different places um, both in the Netherlands and in the UK all at the same time um, as it happened the UCAT conference had to happen virtually anyway and then we realized that actually because the conferences are happening virtually because we're using these communication technologies to deliver a conference online it breaks down all the barriers of geography so it becomes really trivial to actually connect conferences together um, we had a trial, a trial event, well, trial event's not the right word, but we, we held an event 
we thought we'd try to see what would happen if we brought Dutch advisors and English advisors together. Um, and we held an event back in December, uh, a symposium, where we brought advisors together to discuss a particular question. Um, and you know that because you very kindly hosted the event for us. Um, and that was a great event and it worked really well. You know, we were trying it out to see would this work if we brought advisors together from different nations. And, and it worked so well we wanted to repeat the experience. So we thought, well, let's let's see if we can do that in some way. And then we thought, what about doing that during the week of our two conferences? And then we thought, well, we can do that. We can host a session that is shared between the two conferences, but the technology enables us to do so much more. So why can't we share a few more of the sessions? So we did. We cross-linked a few of the sessions. Some of the Dutch sessions were open to the English, and some of the English sessions were open to the Dutch and vice versa. Um, and we used an online platform uh, to host the sort of poster exhibitions for the conferences and provide the social space for people to hang out in and we had both the English and the Dutch delegates in there and it worked really well you know people had their own conferences but were also able to engage with advisors from from a different nation and it just gave it such a really great buzz so I'd love to say it was deliberate and intentional and planned years ago but actually it was serendipity. It was it was a chance that the pandemic threw up for us, and we we seized it and ran with the opportunity. Yes, the, the pandemic presented the conditions, but you had to take advantage of it. And I think if you were to take a step back, all the things that we've spoken about today, uh, student success, technology, working internationally, advising, tutoring, bringing people together, being that that glue, that co connector, all of that was involved in, in the conference. Eh? I mean, it was a kind of a, a wonderful coming together of a, a celebration of, of many of the things that, that we discussed. And that didn't happen by accident. That was through sheer hard work and coming up you know, with, with the idea. Sure, the con conditions allowed for it and the technology was there, but I think it, it does highlight the way in which we can utilize the, the technology in really interesting and innovative ways to make different things happen and to, to really kind of share knowledge and best practice of uh, of advising. So look, kudos to, to you, UCAT uh, and, and LVSR in, in, in terms of making it happen, because I, I haven't come across others doing it in, in similar. I've heard, you know, maybe just presentations, but the way in which delegates were able to, to interact, I thought was uh, really fantastic. Great. Uh, well, that was what we were aiming for. And, and you're right. Yes, the, the, the pandemic gave us the, uh, the conditions, I suppose. It gave us a push. We had been planning for a while that we would like to try and do more between the two associations. Um, but really, that was a, an opportunity that was too good to miss. And yes, once we saw the opportunity, then yes, it takes a lot of hard work to bring those things together. Um, but we've got a great team on both sides who really pitched in to make it happen. Um, so it helped us accelerate the plans, I think. And maybe as we begin probably to, to wind down a little bit, David, I, I think um, one of the things that uh, the, the, the sayings I, I live by is, you know, you can't you can't be good at your your job if your job is all you do. And you are somebody who is very good at your job, but you equally have interests outside of work and 
listeners won't be able to see, but there is a, a guitar that is hanging uh, over uh, David's head uh, in, in the background as we record this. Just interested in, in like David Gray out, outside of uh, being, uh, you know, a personal tutor outside of UCAT. What are the, the things that keep you entertained? Well, you know, you might have heard of me. I've recorded many, many best-selling albums. David Gray, the singer. No, that's not me. That's somebody else completely. Uh, I do like music. I'm embarrassed by my guitar on the wall, actually. Um, slightly embarrassed. Uh, I do like playing my guitar. It's one of those things I taught myself to do when I was when I was a teenager, and I'm really not very good at it at all. Um, and it hangs there, and it doesn't get an awful lot of love most of the time but occasionally i take it down and i do play um peter hagan a good friend of mine and and he he suggested we, he sees the guitar on the wall in fact on every zoom meeting people comment on the guitar on my wall and uh, that makes me think maybe i should learn to play a bit better um, but peter did suggest well maybe we should get together for a jam one day and and i think maybe he was a little disappointed in my musical prowess so Apologies to Peter for that one, but I do enjoy it and I do enjoy music. I love listening to music. Um, but really, actually, the thing that I most love is being outside. I just love being outside in, in the open, in the fresh air. I am I am hugely privileged and blessed to live in a small rural village in, in Yorkshire, in the UK. Um, every morning I go for a you know, walk of three miles or more across the fields with my dog and just listen to the birds and you know, see the trees and the hills around me and it's just absolutely beautiful. That, that's what recharges my batteries, being out in nature. So I love, I love walking, I love being out there, I love, I love, I love food, I'm, I'm quite a foodie and I like growing my own food. I love to have anything in the garden that I can, that I can eat, so anything that I can grow and eat is fine by me. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that, those are my passions really. And, uh, baking bread, you know, that's, that's my, my food thing is baking bread. In fact, I've got, got some on the go at the moment that needs some attention when we finish talking to each other. So, um, well, th thank you for, for offering that insight. I, we've heard a little bit of the bird song in, in the background uh, as we've recorded. So I think we get that, that sense a little bit of, of where, where you've been living. And look, this has been, uh, as I thought it would be, really fascinating um, to, to discuss with you kind of some of your uh, philosophy, some of your approaches and, and the work that, that you've uh, undertaken. Uh, I, I think there is a lot more than serendipity involved in many of the, the projects which have been so successful under your leadership. Thank you for taking the time to, to chat to, to me to, today, David. It's been great to have you on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks to David for offering insights into UCAT's formation and the work they undertake. Yes, indeed. And that does it for this episode of Adventures in Advising. Catch up on previous episodes before the next one drops. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date. And also follow us on our social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Advising Podcast. Take care and keep advising.